Okay, good evening. Thank you so much for joining us. Again, my name is Rabbi Hillel Shaps. Most of you know me, I think. And uh, I run a Lynx. Lynx is a project of the Greater Washington Community Kollel. When things are normal, Lynx has a program weekly at the JCC with uh, a class like this, but also one-on-one -on -one learning opportunities. Um, and we hope that we'll be able to get back to that soon. Well, that's been on hold now for too long. Um, so I'm excited to start a new topic tonight. We titled the, the series, In Their Footsteps, Life Lessons from Our Patriarchs and Matriarchs. Whenever we come around to the back to the beginning of the, of the Torah, back to Parshas Bereshis, Genesis, it's always exciting because I, I, I love, and I know many love the stories of the, the avos, the forefathers, the patriarchs, and the imahos, the, the mothers, the matriarchs, and uh, there's just so much there. And uh, so I was excited to choose that as the topic for this next series. And, uh, and we're going to explore their lives and try to take away some good lessons that are relevant <clears throat> to us. Um, this coming week's Parsha, which is Lech Lecha, is basically our first introduction to Avraham, Abraham. And uh, we go for a few weeks with Abraham, and then we move on, like basically one week of Isaac, a few weeks of Jacob, of Yaakov, then we move on to Yosef. Now we're not going to be following the Parsha necessarily, because I think we'll have more to say about the forefathers than we'll have time for if we just um, restrict it to just those few weeks. So uh, just to give you a sense of how long this series is going to be, it's going to be, I have no idea how long. No, it's going to be, uh, I don't know. I, I kind of make it up as I go along. I don't have a, the full curriculum. I have some ideas of things that I want to get to, what I want to talk about. Um, my guess is it might go for 10 weeks or so, and then we'll pick something else. Um, for the next topic, but uh, give or take, um, we'll uh, be around that. Okay, so if you have the source sheet, you can follow along. If you don't have the source sheet, you can just listen. I am also going to drop it into the chat. So if you don't have it, you can grab it from there if you would like it. The only trick is that I have to just find it. Um, and then I'll be able to do that. And there it is. Okay. So if you will, if you don't have any like it, it's now in the chat. You can download it from there. Okay. So we're actually going to start right off of the source sheet, and we're looking at. A midrash, a midrash is an early teaching of our sages going back to sometime following the destruction of the temple. So maybe 1500 years or so, depending on the midrash. Um, but they're often quoting earlier sources also, dating back as much as 2000 plus years ago when we quote a midrash. So, so the, the sages of the midrash teach us the following. They say, each and every Jew is obligated to ask. When will my deeds equal the deeds of my forefathers, Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And we can throw in the foremothers, the matriarchs, um, who are also we can look up to, and we're going to take lessons from them as well. When will my deeds equal those deeds? When will my when when will my character reach the level of their character? And that's to set a goal for ourselves in in, in our lives. You know, we can certainly look at this and say, who are we kidding? You know, as we'll explore, we're talking about the, 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 the forefathers, the foremothers, the matriarchs. These are the people who founded our people. They, they, everything emanates from them, stems from them. These were great, great people. I don't think that I will ever really reach their level. So who are we kidding? Is this maybe a little bit arrogant, a little bit... Uh, of an exaggeration to say, when will my deeds reach those deeds? The answer is probably never. But nonetheless, we have to ask the question. That's what they're telling us. You have to ask the question. 
And what it means is we have to set that as a goal. We have to realize that they were human. And even though they were way beyond us, perhaps, but they were able to attain their great levels. And we can also attain a great, a great level if we, if we learn from them. And so we have to have dreams. We have to have goals. We have to, we have to dream of, of, of perfection and always be trying to, to grow and to work on, on ourselves and to improve. Because although I've searched long and hard, I still haven't met anyone who's perfect. So, uh, so we all can, uh, can still hope to grow and, to, and really use the, the, the patriarchs, the matriarchs as, uh, as examples, role models for ourselves for what, what, a, what level a, a person, a human being can actually attain. Um, along these lines, the, the sages teach us, you see, we're going to talk about a lot of the stories and, and sometimes we'll, I'm just going to reference them briefly and then later we'll go into, into detail. But uh, so, for example, we're, we're, when, when we come to Abraham looking for a wife for his son, Yitzchak, his son Isaac, he sends his servant Eliezer to go find a wife. And the Torah is very, very lengthy about this process. It basically tells you everything that happened him going to find a wife and then he then tells the story over to the people that he meets up with and it repeats everything again so it's extremely redundant and lengthy so it seems at least and so the sages there comment and they say that and this is the second source the ordinary conversation of the patriarch servants is more pleasing to god than even the torah um, of their children for the chapter of eliezer the account of his journey is repeated in the Torah, whereas many important principles of the law are derived only from slight indications given in the text. So the Torah is, the word Torah really means like moretz. It's a guide. It teaches the way. So much of Torah teaches us exactly how to conduct our lives. What are the, what are the laws by which we have to conduct ourselves? What we call halacha, the mitzvot, the mitzvot, the commandments of the Torah. That is a major part of the Torah. That's what guides our lives. But we find that often many of those laws are just barely hinted to. The Torah will say something very brief and we'll have to, using modes of, of exegesis, which is an English word that you only know if you know what it means in Hebrew, but uh, basically using different tools to interpret an extra word here, missing a word there, a repetition, different things that we can derive certain laws and it's part of our chain of tradition. So you can have a law that is barely hinted to like by one extra letter or something. And on the other hand, here we have that the Torah repeats verse after verse after verse seemingly redundantly. And so what the sages point out is here we see how dear, so to speak, the and this was just the conversation of the servant of Avraham. So we see how dear to God and how important even just the mere conversation of Avraham is um, in comparison even to certain laws. Now we're not going to say what's more important, but maybe we can say what's, what's dear. So it's obviously something that God has great love for. This is very important. This is very close to God's heart, so to speak. Because the mere conversation is, is, is repeated in the Torah. And, and what this is teaching us is that we should, we've got to pay attention to this. We've got to pay attention. If we have to pay so much attention to the mere conversation of a servant of Abraham, then certainly to the myriad of details that we have of the, of the lives of Abraham, Sarah, Yitzchak, Yitzchak's wife, Rivka, Yaakov, Jacob, and his wives, Sar uh, Rachel and Leah. So all of their lives are going to teach us, all the details of their lives are going to teach us essential and important lessons to apply to ourselves. And, uh, and this is the, the approach that we have to have in studying the lives of of the forefathers and of the foremothers of the patriarchs and the matriarchs is this approach that every 
every detail is important. It's all coming to teach me something. It's not teaching me explicit laws. So it must be teaching me in general how to, how to conduct our lives. And again, it has to be with the outlook of how can I, from the first line, we have to ask ourselves, when will my deeds equal the deeds of my forefathers? It has to be with that outlook of, of, of dreaming, aiming, having a goal to try to try to emulate and live in this in the same manner that that they did. So these are this is our approach in examining the lives of the patriarchs and the matriarchs. Um, the the book of Bereshis, the book of Genesis, is referred to actually in the book of Joshua, in the book of Yehoshua, and it's referred to as the Sefer Hayashar. The word Sefer means book. Yashar means literally straight, right? So if you ask for, for directions in Israel, so they'll say Yashar, 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 the Yashar, right? Straight, 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 and straight. And they might say, you mean small, right, left, Yashar, Yashar. So Yashar means straight. So the book of Genesis, the book of Veracious, is called the Sefer Hayashar, the book of the straight. So the Talmud, this is source number three, it quotes this verse from Joshua. It says there, and the sun stood still and the moon stayed until the nation had avenged themselves of their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Yashar? So it has this very, it's kind of like a strange reference. Is this not written in the book of, of, the, of Yashar? It's written in the book of Yashar. And, uh, and this is referring to a miracle that happened in the days of Joshua. The Talmud actually goes on to see where is this written? Where is this hinted to? We're not going to do that. We want to talk about what is the book of Yashar. So the Talmud goes on. It says, Rabbi Chia Bar Abba says that Rabbi Yochanan says, this is Genesis, Beratius, which is the book of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who were called Yisharim. Here, this translation that I took from the translate as righteous. Again, more literally, it means straight. We'll have to try to define actually what it means, Yashar. Um, Yisharim is the plural. Um, they were called Yisharim. As it is stated, let me die the death of Yisharim. This is um, Bilam, the, the Gentile prophet, tried to curse the Jews. He ended up praising them. He ended up blessing them. But in his... Uh, his uh, it, it, within his words, one of the things he says is, let me die the death of the Yisharim, and he's referring to the patriarchs. So, and again, that's also its own topic, why he said that. But what we want to take away right now is that the patriarchs are called Yisharim. They're called straight ones, and so much so that the book of Genesis, which at the end of the day, Genesis is only in a certain way the beginning, right? The very beginning. And then after that, it's more about the patriarchs, the matriarchs. Um, so it's also called, besides for being called the book of Veracious, and besides for being called the book of Genesis, which also in, in, uh, in our tradition, it's also, it's, that's not just like a modern English, uh, or I guess whatever language that is, uh, um, term. We actually, within, within our tradition in the sages, we find that it's called the Sefer Yitzira, which means of creation, which means Genesis. But it's also called Sefer Hayashar, the book of the straight. And that's because it's the book about the Yisharim, about the straight ones. So the forefathers are referred to as the Yisharim. And we have to understand as we approach, you know, take try to gain perspective on their lives, what, why are they called Yisharim? Why are they called straight? What do we mean by that? So the Nitziv, Rav Naftali Tzvi Berlin, was a, uh, the dean of the yeshiva of Alajin in, uh, I guess that was in Russia. Um, and uh, the, the Nitziv, he explains as follows. He says, and I put part of it onto, onto the source sheet, it's number four. This was the praise of the forefathers. Besides for being tzadikim and chasidim, which are different words for righteous, I guess they can specifically refer to different things, but he says, besides for that, and lovers of God to the greatest attainable degree, 
They were also yesharim. They were also straight, meaning they conducted themselves with the nations, even the worst idolaters, with love and were concerned for their welfare. For this is how the world is sustained. Like we see how much Avraham put himself out to pray for Sodom. So this is referring to an episode where God says, the city of Sodom is full of evildoers. I'm going to destroy Sodom. Avraham doesn't say, yeah, that sounds about right. It's full of evildoers. Go ahead, destroy it. Avraham instead prays to God not to destroy it. And he prays and he prays and one thing doesn't work. And he tries another thing and that doesn't work. And he tries another thing. In the end, his prayers are, are not accepted, at least for, for that. But, uh, but he tries very hard. He cares so much about Sodom. He cares so much about Sodom, even though it's people that he totally disagrees with their way of life. And I think would probably somewhat agree that they, that they deserve what's coming to them. But yet he, he prays and he prays for them. And the Nitziv understands that this is an example of being Yashar. Still needs to be defined. Let's give some more examples and maybe we could try to put a, you know, put some words to, to define it. He gives other examples. He says, and I just didn't put this on the source sheet, but he goes on and he says, um, <clears throat> He says, first of all, we find with his relationship with his nephew, Lot. So Avraham gets into some arguments with his nephew, Lot. Again, as we talk about, hopefully we'll explore some of the more details. But now just in a general sense, he gets into some arguments with his nephew, Lot. He always treats him with tremendous, tremendous respect. Kind of says, you choose where you want to go. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll take second choice. Treats him with tremendous respect. Um, he always wants what's, what's best for him. And, uh, and he references the title that Avram later receives. You see, Avram wasn't always Avraham. He started off with the name Avraham, Avram without the ha. Huh. And then later God adds the hey, and it goes from Avram to Avraham. And at that time, God says, the reason I'm changing your name is because you are an Av Hamon Goyim, the father of a multitude of nations. So somehow Avraham represents like a father to all the nations. And the Nativ says, you see this in his treatment of others. You see this in his treatment of Sodom. He's like a father, right? A father, even when uh, the child does wrong, but the father is forgiving, the father um, has unlimited love for them, hopes for what's best for them. And this is really the approach of the Nitziv, that what, the way he understands Yashar being straight in, is always looking for what's sort of best for the, for the world, for the sustenance of the world, for, for, the, for, for the society, for the, for the society to be sustained, for the society to live on. Um, he gives examples from the other forefathers, Isaac and Jacob also, where they, they also behave in this way, um, just getting, trying to get along, even with those that they, that they uh, kind of quarrel with, but they're always being respectful. They're always giving the others the, the, the opportunity, the chance. And, uh, and he says that this is, this is what we call, we term it often, Derech Eretz. Derech Eretz is literally the way of the land. So we have a statement in our sages, Derech Eretz Kadma La Torah. That means that Derech Eretz comes before Torah. Derech Eretz is, we speak, we say this to our kids, you have to have Derech Eretz. It means you have to, you have to be respectful. You have to respect others. And you have to have respect for others even before you have Torah. And that's what we have sort of in the setup of the Torah itself is before the Torah, meaning before all the laws of the Torah, we have the behavior of the patriarchs and the matriarchs, and we have their conduct, which is derech arts. They don't even have the Torah yet. The Torah wasn't given yet, but they're always conducting themselves with derech arts, with respect for others, with care for others, and really with just looking out for what's best for others and what's best for society 
and the, the, the maintenance and the sustenance of continued existence of, of the society around them. And, and the book of Beratius, the, this book, which like we said, it's also called Genesis, the book of creation. So it's not just the creation of the world, which it is at the beginning, but it's also the creation of, of life, the creation of society. And the way that the that the patriarchs were, you know, that was a part of who they were in trying to trying to, to continue and and create a functioning and successful society rooted in respect for others and uh, and care. And that's one of the repeating themes. And, and again, that's something that they are intuiting on their own, that this is the way that we should conduct ourselves. It's not coming from a specific commandment from God to, to, to conduct themselves in this way. It's, this is intuitive to them. And I think that's what, it, uh, what, what the native is really saying, that yashar, being straight, means sort of having the intuition to do what's right and what's best. That's the, the straightness the, the, of, of the forefathers is just this, this intuitive knowledge of, of, of how to conduct oneself. And, uh, and we have another example of, of this that's brought out by another one of the commentaries, um, someone more recent, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky. And he's discussing it in the context of another episode um, with Avraham, which is actually in this week's Torah portion, where, um, where there's this war that's going on in the days of Abraham, and it's these very powerful four kings. And they join together, and they defeat all the other nations around them. There were five kings that they were up against. The four kings defeated the five kings, even though they were outnumbered, apparently. But their armies won, and in the process, they captured Abraham's nephew, Lot. So Abraham gathers his men, and he goes, and he rescues Lot. Now that's putting himself at great risk. He's taking on these very powerful kings. He's putting himself at risk, but he goes anyways. So the way that Rabbi Kamenetsky presents it, he says, well, imagine if, if Avraham had gone to his rabbi, which he didn't have, but imagine, you know, nowadays someone's captured in that fashion. You go to your rabbi and you say, do I have an obligation to go and rescue him? So it's actually a very complicated question, whether one is even permitted to risk their life to save another life, it, it, because we, you know, we we value each life, and and we actually put an individual's life comes before someone else's life in general, before a second person's. Um, one should like like with the uh, on the airplane with the gas masks that that come down the uh, you know put yours on before you help your child. So uh, so in general in Jewish law. There's that's the general principle is help yourself before you help someone else in terms of when it comes to a life. Now, there may be exceptions to that, but that's the general point. So the way he presents it is, let's say Avraham had gone to his rabbi and said, are you know, am I obligated to go fight these four kings, you know, to go on this this mission to rescue my nephew Lot? So the answer would probably have been that he is not obligated. So so why did he do it? So Rabbi Kamenetsky says that Avraham did it because he felt that he had to, not be, just because his family and, you know, you got to do what you can for family, but he actually felt indebted in a certain way to Lot. Now, why would he be indebted to Lot? What did Lot ever do for him? So there is something that Lot did for him um, one time, which was that when they went to Egypt and Avraham was hiding Sarah, Lot was there, he didn't give it away. It's one thing Lot did for him. I think there's some who take that approach. That's why Avraham felt indebted to him. But there's another approach, and this is the approach of Rabbi Kamenetsky, which is that he felt indebted to him for a different way, or not so much a debt to him, but responsible for him. Let's learn a little bit about what we know about Avraham's life before this week's Torah portion. And what we know about Avraham's life before this week's Torah portion is not from any Torah portion, because last week's Torah portion was not about Avraham or there was very little about him at the end. So what we know about Avraham from before he's really introduced in the Torah, we know from our tradition and from the Midrash. So the Midrash has this, the following somewhat famous 
parts of this I think are, are famous, but we'll read it together. And uh, it's actually kind of entertaining. And, uh, and then we'll, we'll, we'll come back to our, our point. So if you look at number six, um, number five just talks about Lot being captured um, and then Avraham hearing and going to rescue him. So number six, this is a Midrash. So the Midrash says, and Haran died in the presence of his father, Terach. Haran was Avraham's brother. Terach was Avraham's father. It says that Haran, Avraham's brother, died in the presence of his father, Terach. So the sages teach us in the Midrash as follows. Rabbi Chia said, again, we're on number six. Terach was a manufacturer of idols. He once went away somewhere and left Avraham to sell them in his place. So you may remember this story. It's, it's a true story brought in the Midrash. So Avraham is now operating his father's idol shop. A man came in and wished to buy one. How old are you? Avraham asked the man. 50 years old, he said. So Avraham commented, woe to such a man who is 50 years old and would worship a day old object. Now, this idol was just manufactured yesterday. You've been around for 50 years. You want to worship this idol? That doesn't make sense. On another occasion, a woman came in with a plate full of flour and requested of him, take this and offer it to them. Offer it to the idol as a carbon, as an offering. So he took a stick and broke them. I mean, he broke the idols with the stick and then he put the stick in the hand of the largest. When his father returned, he demanded, what have you done to them? What did you do to the idols? So he says, I can't conceal it from you. A woman came with a plate full of fine meal, of flour, and requested me to offer it to them. One claimed I must eat first, while another claimed I must eat first. Thereupon, the largest arose, took the stick, and broke them. So that's why the largest one is holding the stick, and he got the flour, and he broke the other ones. So his father said, what do you make sport of me? Have they knowledge? Terach said, should not your ear... So fine. So that was his response. You know, what are you talking about? These, not, these aisles don't have any knowledge. So Avraham said, should not your ears hear what your mouth has said? Thereupon, Terach seized him and delivered him to Nimrod. So now he's in trouble. He takes him to the king of the land, to Nimrod. So Nimrod says, let us worship fire. Come, come, my son. I'm sure we can, uh, we can uh, change you. We can... Uh, we can remediate you. We come, you know, you're my friend. Let's go together. We're gonna to worship fire. So, so Avram said, let us rather worship water with quenches fire. Why will you worship fire? Water puts out fire. Okay. Nimrod thought that was a great idea. Let's worship water. So then Avram says, let's worship the clouds which bear the water. Okay, let's worship the clouds. So then Avram says, let's worship the wind, which disperses the clouds. Okay, great idea, Nimrod said, let's worship the wind. No, let's worship humans, which can stand up to the wind, Avram said. So now Nimrod's upset. He's had enough of him. He says, you're just joking with me. You're bandying words. We will worship nothing but the fire. Let's go back to the beginning. Behold, I will cast you into it. I'm going to throw you in the fire and let your God, whom you adore, come and save you from it. So you're insisting that there's one God. So... And, and you know, so, so here, my God against yours, I'm going to throw you into the fire. Let's see what happens. So now Haran, who was Avraham's brother, he wasn't sure what side to take. He was undecided. He said, ah, if Avraham is victorious, I will say that I am of Avraham's belief. Well, if Nimrod is victorious, I will say that I am on Nimrod's side. So when, when Abraham descended into the fiery furnace and was saved, Nimrod asked him. Oh, so basically what happens is Abraham is thrown in the fire. God makes a miracle for him. He saves him from the fire, from the furnace. So now it's Haran's turn. So Nimrod asks Haran, his, Avraham's brother, so whose side are you on? Whose belief are you? Now Haran really didn't believe in Avram, but now that you know didn't believe in Avram's God, but now that he had seen Avram saved, so now he says, "Okay, I'm I'm with Avram." So thereupon he seized him and cast him into the fire, and he was scorched and died in the presence of his father. So that's hence it is written, and Haran died in the presence of his father Terah. So that's all we have in the verse is and Haran died in the presence of his father Terah, 
because his father was there when he was cast into the fire. So, so Haran was not saved because he wasn't really willing to, to sacrifice himself for God. He just, in the end of the day, when he, uh, when he saw that Avram was saved, so then he was willing to, uh, to do so. so. So this is an important, very important story um, about sort of Avraham's beginnings. And we're going to talk, we'll come back and discuss it more a little bit soon. But back to our question of uh, why Avraham felt responsible for saving Lot. So says Rabbi Kamenetsky, well, Lot's an orphan because his father, Haran, when I say that Lot was his nephew, that's he was the son of Haran. So his father, Haran, died. Avram felt that it was somewhat his fault. He was somewhat responsible for Haran's death. Not that he had caused it directly, but he felt some amount of responsibility for Haran's death, leaving Lot uh, uh, orphaned. And therefore, um, Avram felt some responsibility. And that's why he went to try to save Lot, even though it was at great risk to himself. So the way that Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky puts it, though, is that this is Yashrut. This is straightness. This is the, uh, when we say that, that Avraham is, is a yashar, is a straight one. So it means it does, it's not an explicit law like this. He wasn't necessarily required to do this, but it's what we might call menschlichkeit. It's being a mensch. It's doing what's, what's proper, doing what's right. Um, and sometimes, you know, not everything is explicit, an explicit law in the Torah. Sometimes it's, you have to, you have to know intuitively what's the right thing to do. Um, and that's again this 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 idea of yashrut of straightness coming through this intuitive sense of this is just what's I'm doing it just because it's it's the right thing to do, and uh, and therefore he felt he felt that he should even though he was risking himself go and rescue Lot and this is what a, a theme that is uh, is recurring in the lives of Avraham Yitzchak and Yaakov. Um, which is they're living in a way, sometimes God commands them to do things, and, uh, but much of it is their intuitive sense of what is right. It could be they, you know, it could be just pure intuition. It could be that there's more, there's Kabbalistic ideas, sort of how they, how they knew what, exactly what to do, but they, they sort of on their own were able to, 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 to determine the proper way to live to some extent. And, uh, and that falls under this, this, definite, this description of being yashar, just being straight. And this is a term that we, that we use nowadays, you know, sometimes, and it's a, it's a great, uh, if we can be described as, as someone who is yashar, someone who's straight, they, uh, a straight sugar, so to speak, but not necessarily in the, you know, in, a, in, a, in the sense that, they just, someone who just does, does the right thing, they just do what's right. So that's, it doesn't seem like much, but it really is. It really is a great, uh, a great trait to have, um, to be able to intuitively know what's the, what's, what's the right thing to do in a given situation, um, in relationships, in, uh, and that, that's really what this all is with Avram. It's, it's, it's different, different people that he's encountering and how he relates to them. And, and, and it's all with this, sense of, of, of yashrus, of straightness, of just intuitively knowing what's, what's the right thing to do. And derech eretz, respect for, for others. So that's the introduction to Avraham based on this description um, found, in, again, in the book of Joshua, of this book, Sefer Hayashar, the book of the straight ones, that the Avos, the forefathers, were, had this quality of, of intuitive sense of, of the right thing to do. <clears throat> Okay, want well, to see um, a very important introduction to who Abraham was and what he accomplished, and that is through the the eyes of the Rambam of Maimonides. Um, if I can find the right page here, yeah. So back to the source sheet. We're looking at number seven. It's another longer source, but. Maimonides, the Rambam, gives us a whole, a whole 
description of the, at least the, the beginnings of Avram's life, a lot of which is off the page, so to speak. It's not in the, uh, it's not in the Torah. It's in, again, in the tradition, in the sages, in the Midrash, in the Talmud. And uh, this is actually found in the, in, in the very beginning of the laws pertaining to idol worship. So Ramba Maimonides wrote a work called Mishnah Torah, where he goes through all the laws of the Torah, all the mitzvos, and all the technical details of all the laws. And uh, in the section before he deals with all the laws dealing with idolatry, so he gives sort of an introduction to the history of idolatry, of how people fell into worshiping idols. And part of the history is Avraham emerging as a... Uh, a believer and a promoter of monotheism, a belief in one God. So he says, after this mighty man, Avraham was weaned, he began to explore and think. So already from a very young age, Avraham was thinking, he was looking at the world. And though he was a child, he began to think incessantly throughout the day and night, wondering how is it possible for the sphere to continue to revolve without having anyone controlling it? Who is causing it to revolve? Surely it does not cause itself to revolve. So one of the examples that, that Maimonides gives is, is how, how does the, the world turn? It must be that there's a God causing it to, to turn. I think there's another Midrash, which I saw quoted, um, which Avram used a similar um, logical progression that he did when he later encountered Nimrod. So we saw in the Midrash that that Avraham, when he was speaking to Nimrod, he followed a progression. He said, uh, he said to, to Nimrod, Nimrod said, let's worship fire. So, uh, so Avraham says, well, why not worship water? Because water beats fire, you know, like rock, paper, scissors. I guess now there's no fire and, and water there, but, uh, but fire, water beats fire. So fine. So he said, let's, let's worship the, the water. So he's like, okay, no, let's worship the clouds because clouds hold water. So the, the, the water can't be the God, the, the clouds hold the water. Then he said, let's worship the wind. And he followed this whole progression. So there's actually a midrash, another midrash, that that was part, a similar logical progression that, uh, that Avraham used in, uh, in sort of coming to the conclusion of one God. Um, I'm just going to bring it up here. Oh, sorry, one second, just so I quote it correctly. Here we go. So it says as follows, the Midrash says, Avram questioned, why should we bow down to idols? Gods that we ourselves make, we should bow down, bow to the earth, bow to the earth. It produces the crops that sustain us. We should worship the earth. So he began to worship the earth. It's interesting. It says he actually began, he worshiped the earth because it made more sense than worshiping idols. And then it says he saw that the earth needs rain. So he began to worship the sky. Then he saw that Actually, the most brilliant creation in the sky was the sun. So he began to worship that. But then the sun set and the moon rose. So he began to worship the moon. And when the sun rose the next morning, he didn't know what to do. He couldn't figure out which one was stronger, the sun or the moon. So that was sort of the types of, of thoughts that he was going through. Because everybody was just worshiping whatever. But he kind of... It, cancel each one out because it can't be because this one goes away and that one goes away and this one beats this one and that one can't be that any of these is 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 god there must be something more powerful than all of it this was already from a young age the the uh thought progression that avraham went through so it says he had no teacher we're back in my mind he's in the ramam we're on the fourth line he had no teacher nor was there anyone to inform him Rather, he was mired in Orkastim. That's where he lived among the foolish idolaters. His father, mother, and all the people around him were idol worshipers, and he would worship with them. However, his heart was exploring and gaining understanding. So he was thinking, he was exploring. Ultimately, he appreciated the way of truth and understood the path of righteousness through his accurate comprehension. 
He realized there was one God who controlled the spirit, that he created everything, and that there was no other God among all the other entities. He knew that the entire world was making a mistake. What caused them to err was their service of the stars and images. Okay, that's going back to something he discussed earlier. Avraham was 40 years old when he became aware of his creator. So there was a process here. We have a, a midrash, I think, that says he was three years old. The way the Rambam understands this is at three year old, years old, he began exploring. By the time he was asking these questions, he was thinking. It was a process. At 40 years old is where he kind of arrived at his conclusion. And, uh, and when, he knew, when he recognized and knew him, he began to formulate replies to the inhabitants of Orkastam and debate with them telling them that they were not following a proper path. So we saw that, an example of that in that Midrash where he's debating his father about the, the idols. He broke their idols and began to teach the people that he is fitting to serve only the God of the world. To him alone is it fitting to bow down, sacrifice, etc. Fine. Um, conversely, he is fitting to destroy and break all the images, all these idols, lest all the people err concerning them. Next paragraph, when he overcame them through the strength of his arguments, the king desired to kill him. That was the Midrash that we read. He was saved through a miracle and left for Haram. There he began to call in a loud voice to all people and inform them that there is one God in the entire world. Sorry, I was calling Avraham's brother Haran the whole time. His name was Haran. That the Haran is the city that, that he traveled to. Um, there he began to call in a loud voice to all people and inform them that there is one God in the entire world and is proper to serve him. So basically, Avram goes out on this mission and he starts teaching people about monotheism, about how there's only one God. And he was very good at this. He would go out and call to the people, gathering them in city after city and country after country until he came to the land of Canaan, proclaiming God's existence the entire time. As Genesis states, and he called there in the name of the Lord, the eternal God. When the people would gather around him and ask him about his statements, he would explain them to each one of them according to their understanding until they turned to the path of truth. Ultimately, thousands and myriads gathered around him. These are the men of the house of Avraham. Torah references them at the beginning of this Torah portion. I'm not sure how Maimonides knew how many there were. I'm not sure that it could be that he has a source for that, I imagine. Um, he planted in their hearts this great fundamental principle, composed texts about it, and taught it to Isaac, his son, and then Isaac to Jacob, and etc. So Avraham, first of all, discovered, he, he came to the conclusion. Now, it had been known previously, but it had kind of been forgotten. He was able to come to the conclusion that there was just one God. And uh, not only that, but he was very successful in sharing and spreading the, the word about this. So this is the the uh, beginnings of, of Avraham's life. Um, and I want to sort of come back to this also in the last section of the class to bring out an idea that relates to, to this and really connects that to the concept of Yashara being straight and intuitive, um, as we'll, we'll see soon. But before we do that, so the next source on the page is a very important Mishnah. The teaching of the sages in Pirkei Avos, in Ethics of the Fathers, and it's number six, uh, number eight. And it says, um, there were 10 generations from Noah, from Noah to Avraham. And then in the next one, it says, line number three, Mishnah number three, with 10 trials was Avraham our father, may he rest in peace, tried. Avraham was given 10 tests. He withstood them all to make known how great was the love of Abraham, our father, peace be upon him. So the Mishnah teaches us that Abraham encountered 10 tests in his life. Now the Mishnah does not tell us what those 10 tests were. And that is some, you know, the subject of debate among the great commentaries. But it does tell us that he had 10 tests. So some examples of what those tests may have been. So on some lists, we have what we, that Midrash that we read about, the encounter with Nimrod and being thrown into the fiery pit and standing up and, and, and resisting. And uh, that would be one example of a test that Avraham underwent. Another example that is, I think everybody has on their list is from the beginning of 
this week's Torah portion, Lech Lecha, go for you, where God says to leave your birthplace and go to the land that I will show you, which is going to be the land of Canaan. That's on everybody's list. Obviously, Akedat Yitzchak, the binding of Isaac, is on everybody's list. And there are various events, other events um, that make up the tent. So what is the purpose of this though? Why, why does Avraham have to undergo 10 tests? What's, what's the message of this? What's the purpose of it? Why is God testing in the commentaries discuss sort of what, what it means that God tests, God knows what's gonna happen, you know? So some say that you have to still bring it out into reality, that's using your free will. Others say that test isn't really the best word for it. It's really um, the word nace, which means nisayon is a test, is the same root as the word nace, which is a miracle, and also the same word as the word banner. So it's sort of when, you, when a person goes through a nisayon, a test, and withstands it, so they are creating a banner, an announcement sort of you know, about God, for God. So there's, there's that approach. But what's, so what's, what's going on here? Why is it necessary for Avraham to go through these 10 tests. So Rabbi Chaim of Valazhin um, explains very beautifully. He first of all points out that if you look closely at the Mishnah, these two Mishnahs that I put down, the first one, I only put the first line because that's all we need for this. It says there were 10 generations from Noach to Abraham, to Avraham, and it does not call him Avraham, our father there. It just says Avraham. The very next Mishnah says, with 10 trials was Avraham our father tried. So there it says, calls him Avraham Avinu, Avraham our father. So why the, why, the, why the switch from one Mishnah to the next? First, it didn't call him Avraham Avinu, Avraham our father. The very next Mishnah, it calls him Avraham Avinu, Avraham our father. So Rav Chaim of Elijah says very beautifully, he says that the, the concept of the trials that Avraham undergoes, the purpose of them is that as our father, he is sort of planting the seeds for us, for also to be able to over, overcome similar trials and tribulations. Uh, it's sort of creating, in, I mean, in general, he says that maybe on a more immediate uh, level, a father, a grandfather, a mother, a grandmother. So they're able to pass on certain traits to their children. And, and not only that, but certain things that they've been able to overcome. So they pass on that trait to their child to make it a little bit easier for their child to overcome. And that's the concept he says of Avram. Avram is, is by God putting Avram through this experience, Avram as the father of all the Jewish people, God is putting into our spiritual DNA, so to speak, the ability to overcome and transcend similar tests and similar experiences. And he says, he says, you know, you wonder where did the Jews throughout the generations get that, uh, that ability to just give up their lives for the sake of, of heaven, give up their lives for the sake of God, even simple Jews, even Jews that weren't so knowledgeable, weren't so righteous necessarily, weren't, you know, but when, when, when their religion is on the line, so even the simplest Jews were willing to give up their lives. Where does that come from, he says? He says it comes from that inheritance, that Avraham was willing to sacrifice himself and be thrown into the fiery furnace by Nimrod to stand up for his beliefs. He says, where does it come from that, uh, you see people, you still see it today. You know, all of a sudden, they're like, okay, I'm moving to Israel. Really? What are you going to do there? How are you going to make a living? I don't know. I'll figure it out, right? I'm moving to Israel. Where does that come from? Where do we get that strength to, to just decide to do that? He says, that comes from Lech Lecha, the test that Avram under, underwent to uh, get up, leave his birthplace, and just move to, to the land of Israel. And uh, that's the same, he says, with all of the tests and trials that Abraham underwent. You know, some of the tests were related to his children. Yishmael, not the easiest son, um, not having a child for a long time. All of these 
tests were these were challenging and uh but by by going through them experiencing them and overcoming them so he is implanting within us the ability to overcome similar similar trials we'll have to explore the tests a little bit more sort of the experiences of avram to really try to zero in on what they were what was the test of of sacrificing a song obviously that's a test but you know there's there's so much that can be said about it and uh and these these ideas these 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 uh the the fact that avram was able to overcome them is 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 very empowering for us to be able to to overcome similar trials because we have it within us we have that ability planted within us from our ancestor Avraham. Um, Avraham? Yes. How, how, how is it that Avraham performing certain tests, overcoming certain tests, how does that transfer to us? That's an excellent mm-hmm. question. It's an excellent question. And I can't say that I, that I know the answer for sure. I did see it discussed. Again, it gets more into a, uh, a Kabbalistic realm of how our actions have reactions, our actions. I mean, this, Robert, this takes us back to Nefesh Achayim, where, uh, where, which I'm sure you remember every word that we learned together from it, uh, however, six years ago or whatever it was. So our, uh, our actions have spiritual impact in, in ways that we can't imagine. So our, again, very, very, you know, Kabbalah in like one, you know, 10 seconds, the, the little that I know, you know, our souls are in a, again, in a spiritual way, you know, they go all the way up to the, like the highest spiritual realms and our actions shoot all the way up and then they reverberate down into all areas. So the, uh, so the actions of the, and, and the greater the person the greater the reverberation, so to speak, of their of their actions. So the the, the actions of the forefathers have tremendous um, impact on uh, on the, the future of the world. So maybe we'll get into it more next week, possibly, um, or maybe we'll say that it's above us. But uh, but we'll see. But it's it's th- that concept of we don't. The, it works on a spiritual level. We don't see. We don't see the. You know, we know that our mitzvos, our, our good deeds, have spiritual consequence. We don't see exactly what that is, but in that, that same sense, the actions of the forefathers can have spiritual consequence um, for for even for their um, for their um, offspring. Okay, I'd want to just close with um, one more one more idea, taking us back to the test of lech lecha. So, so as I mentioned, there are different ways to count the tests of Avraham. So the co- great commentary, medieval commentary, Rabbeinu Yonah, in his commentary on the Mishnah. So he says, test number one was Avraham being thrown into the fiery furnace. Test number two was Lech Lecha, was Avraham being sent to leave his birthplace and go to Canaan. But Maimonides, who also has a commentary on Pirkei Avos, on this Mishnah, he says, actually, he basically insists that all the tests are explicit in the Torah. So therefore, he doesn't count, or custom, he doesn't count the test of the furnace, and he counts lech lecha as, he counts lech lecha as the first test. So it's difficult to understand why that should be. You know, at, at the end of the day, giving up his life, you know, being willing to be thrown into the fiery furnace, that just seems like such a greater test than lech lecha then go leave your land and go to another place. Especially because if you read the verses, it doesn't seem like such a big test. Look over here, number nine. And the Lord said to Abraham, go forth from your land and from your birthplace and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. Okay, so far it's looking it's looking challenging because he's telling him to leave his birthplace. And I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you and I will aggrandize your name and you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse, and all the families of the earth shall be blessing you. So, you know, he promises him, God says, go, and then I'm going to make you into a great nation, and bless you. You have all great things. And, 
And he says, go for you, it's for your benefit. So if God says that if you go there, you're going to be made into a great nation and it's going to be for your benefit. So is that really such a big test to have to leave your, yeah, I mean, it could be hard to leave home, but uh, is, is that really such a test? And, and to count that and not count being willing to be thrown into the fiery furnace, why, why should that be? So Rabbi Matisio Solomon explains, um, based on other commentaries really, but brings together a few ideas which is gonna tie us back to where we started tonight. And, and that is that the test of Avraham, of Lech Lecha, of go, leave your land, was not really whether he would be willing to go, but it's more about why he would go. Would he go because of all that God promised him? Or would he go because God told him to go? And he would do it because that was God's will and because he wanted to follow God's will. And that's uh, it's a difference. And it's a very big difference, especially for Abraham, because we have to understand that this is, at least in the Torah, the first time that we see that God speaks to Avram. This is his first command. You know, after all these years, I think Avram is now 75, I think. After all these years, this is finally the moment God appears to him and gives him a command, tells him what to do after all these years. And so what's Avram used to? You know what Avram's used to? He's used to being yashar. He's used to being straight, intuitively knowing what to do, what's best. And you know what? He was amazing at it. He was, he is the Yashar. He's the straight one. He's the one who knows what to do. And he made a, you know, he made his life out of that. Not only in the way that he dealt with people, not only in the way that the respect that he had, but even more than that, his whole life was about intuitively knowing what to do or discovering it on his own, but coming to conclusions on his own. He came to the conclusion on his own that there's one God. He then made a whole, his whole life dedicated to that. He gave up everything for it. He sacrificed his life for it. He then went and recruited people. And he, he was the ultimate outreach worker. And he brought people in. But all of this is coming not from a single commandment from God. It's all coming from within him. It's all coming from, I know what to do. I can figure out what's right. Because he was so good at that. So now all of a sudden, he gets a command. He gets a command. Now, obviously, this is the right thing to do, not just because of the command, because this is how he's going to be built into a great nation. This is the best thing that can happen to him. This is the best thing that can happen for his goals and what he knows is best for, for the world and for him. But he has to realize, he has to take a step back, that there's what I know intuitively, and then there's what God tells me to do. And there will be times that those things aren't going to be exactly aligned. And maybe what I think is intuitively the right thing to do may one day turn out not to be the right thing to do in a given moment. Because at the end of the day, the right thing to do is whatever God says is the right thing to do. This is God's world. So, so at this moment, Avraham can go, he can lech lecha, he can go for one of two reasons. He could go because this is exactly what he needs, and this is what the world needs, and this is the best thing that can happen for him and for his, his mission to spread the word of God or to spread you know, knowledge of God, or he could go simply because God said to do it. Much without his, all his own calculations and that it makes sense to me. And what does it say? It says, and, and Avram went as the Lord had spoken to him. Kasher tiber, as God had said to him, he didn't go because he thought it made sense. He went because God commanded him to do it. And that was a great test for him because he had spent so all this time doing whatever he thought was best and being absolutely right, by the way, but doing what he thought was best. And now he's all of a sudden going to do it for a different reason. And this is a very important test and it's going to be very important for him throughout his life. But it's a very important lesson, which is that, yes, we can often intuit what's right. And it's so important to always, you know, to live our lives that way and try to just be good people, right? And, and do what's right and do the right thing. But there will be times where what we think 
may be best may not align with what God says to do. And maybe we need to, at times, reframe our perspective, reframe our thinking based on the word of God. And so even though Avram spent his whole life knowing what to do, intuitively knowing what's right, but now he takes his first, according to my mom, he's the first test is now God says, now you're with me. Now I'm going to give you an instruction. Are you going to do it simply because you think that's what's the best thing to do? Or are you going to do it because God says that it's the best thing to do? And whether you understand it or not, you would still do it. And that's the, the first test that Avram is giving. And he passes with flying colors. Avram went as the Lord had spoken to him. He went because God said, that's why I'm going to do it. Okay, we will stop there. Okay, thank you, Rabbi Shaps.